a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. Our next guest is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, producer, guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, the greatest hair in rock as well. A brand new record coming out, The Life and Times of Eddie Gage, a pre-order now coming out on April 1st, wherever you get your music. And, of course, the brand new video for Burn Like the Sun, available now wherever you stream and download. Welcome to the show, an absolute Canuck legend, Aldo Nova. Hey, Jerry. Hey, bonjour. How's it We're going? Good. We're good. Yeah, and, and by the way, let's there. not... Sorry, let's not forget to mention that Aldo Nova 2.0 Reloaded is also coming out in April on April 19th. Right. Um, right. So, so we, we've got two uh, new Aldos, which is very, it's very the year exciting. year of Aldo Nova, man. It's the year of Aldo. So well, I, I've got more stuff coming out after that. And it's like I've got the full rock opera coming out uh, probably later in the year. So the, uh, the EP is just a taste of uh, it's only 10 songs. Uh, the actual album is 25 songs. Wow. So uh, we'll see. I'm putting out the 10 song EP first because I thought two hours was too much to, to, to absorb at once. I mean, you have to have it last two hours and five minutes. So, I, you know, I thought that let's just give them fit. And the EP is like 50 minutes long. So, I mean, it's enough to, to give you a taste. So, a taste. Yeah. so let me ask you about this because it says, and I'm going to read the description. It is a rock opera that tells the story of Eddie Gage, mm-hmm. a prodigious ingenue who breaks into the music industry only to be preyed upon by the nefarious suits and corporate overlords and then succumbs to drugs, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is this an imaginary tale, or is this the life and times of Aldenova? Well, it says in uh, it says in the, I don't know if you've read the Lanaros, but the Lanaros are really, really extensive on this thing. I yeah. guess the the dates correspond. And it's sort of my way of looking at the music business and sort of warning people as to what to stay away from. And you know, the the whole rock opera is about evil and good and white and dark, and you know, it's about a, a kid's uh, journey. Yeah, I guess. It's sort of autobiographical in a certain extent. So, I guess writing from a place of personal perspective, Dove. I mean, I I feel like if you're telling your own story within a character, it kind of helps knowing the story. Um, so I uh, knowing the story of the the actual rock opera. I mean, well, no, I mean, like if you're writing from a from a from like a self reflective position, like if the character's kind of you in a way, and you're telling your own story through a character. I feel like the fact that you know the story better than anybody, you're the best person to write it. Exactly. I'm the best. No, no doubt about it. I'm the best person to write it. And I'm actually, I can actually um, give people my opinion as to what, uh, what to steer away from and what to, actually the whole thing is like, what to stay away from, uh, like stay away, you know, like, uh, like um, the rock opera is, you know, about Eddie Gage, you get signed, and he gets signed by a guy called Andy Christos. And then uh, Andy tells him that's to sign without a lawyer. So from there on, it just starts. The dates correspond because he gets signed April 1st, uh, 1981, and his record comes out uh, April 1st, uh, 1982. So it's pretty much the similar timeline <laughs> as mine. And it's written in the, the liner notes, which are, uh, which are all there. 
So, which yeah. are all there. Let me ask you this, because obviously you're known for writing great singles. You've written for Celine Dion. You've written for Bon Jovi or John Bon Jovi. You've written, of course, yourself, you know, um, Blood on the Bricks and, and Fantasy and stuff. What was it like to write an entire sort of two and a half hour rock opera? How did you approach the writing? Was it the same? Or did you have to sort of introspect and say, OK, I got to have a new game plan on this one? Well, when I was writing for other people, it was sort of like I was putting myself in another room and it's sort of like, okay, well, now you have three hours to six hours or a day to come up with a song. And those songs were uh, written from like formula, type of formulaic thing. Whereas on Eddie Gage, it was all written from inspiration. So that's why the record took so long to finish. I mean, I started the project in 2008. In 2008, I recorded eight songs, uh, all eight appear on the, the last version, King of Deceit, Bitch in Black, uh, all these other ones. So, and I didn't want to push it. I didn't want to write an album that you, you know, you sit at a piano and, and, you know, figure out some chords and figure, well, this sounds good with the other one. That's why it took so long. So there was uh, eight songs written in 2008. Then in 2013, I wrote some other ones. 2014, I wrote one or two. 2015, I wrote one. 2019, I started to write the, the bulk of, of it. In 2020, I finished it. And then in 2021, I wrote the last song, Les Anges, uh, on November 10th of 2021. So. Right. And I remember the last time we were at your place, I mean, we were listening to some of the songs on the record and you were telling us how, you know, the, the production yeah. process of writing the guitars and getting everything done. I mean, it wasn't just something that you threw together overnight. I mean, like it kind of was like a real proper passion project in a way. You're trying to tell this story and, and you want to tell well, that, it the right way. That, I was telling the story. And when I first started uh, the project, the first thing that popped in my, in my head was uh, the title. The title <clears> changed. I mean, when I first began the project, there was always the life and times of litigation. The basic story was always going to be that. So as the songs progressed and each song came, without even knowing, uh, you know, I, I wasn't writing, oh, this song has to follow that, this song has to follow that. It was sort of an unconscious thing that uh, the, the story just came out by itself. And then it, uh, what really makes the story come out is the pacing of the album, what song comes after this and what song comes after that one. Yeah. But the, the album is sort of a timeless sound. I could I could put it out in the next five years, and it would still sound as good in the next five years. It's um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, you listen to a song like "Kickstart My Heart" by Motley Crue, and it's basically about you know Nikki ODing and coming back. In this record, you kind of go through all of the emotions, production wise, and you know, I mean, you got the ballads, you got the the rock anthems. Um, was that sort of in the back of your mind? Like, I need this type of song for this type of this for this section of the story, or no, not at all. Uh, it wasn't calculated in, in any way, sense of form, in any way, shape, or form. Like I said, the songs came from inspiration. I wouldn't push them. If I'd get an idea while I was driving, I would open my phone, tape that idea, come home and and figure it out. And the hardest part for me about songwriting is like trying to work out what I hear in my head, because for me, it comes out extremely detailed, you know, up to almost the hi-hat uh, opening up, uh, up. So I, I, I have the, like I say in the liner notes, I have the ability and so my God-given gift is to be able to have both from an idea to five hours later hearing the, the song coming out of the speakers. So 
you know, that's, uh, it's great to do that. So. so you work pretty fast then, if that's the case. I mean, you're driving down Highway 20, you get an idea, voice note it, five hours later, you got a demo. Yeah, but then I got to figure it out. That takes me 15 days. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that takes 15 like, years. You know, it's like, I'm trying to figure out the course. Mm. I, mean, I cannot, I've got the worst ear that I think uh, anybody's ever had. If you ask me, figure out the song, like listen to like any song on the radio. Some guys are great. I mean, uh, some guys just figure it out. They go, okay, this is this. I cannot figure out anybody else's music, which is right. probably why I wrote, I wrote my own music. But I've always written my own music since I was 14. Let me just uh, quickly ask you something about the uh, Aldenova 2.0 uh, Reloaded that comes out on April 19th. It's a three-disc package. One disc has no vocals, so fans can sing along. And one disc has no guitar so that they can play along. Uh, talk to me about that concept. It's, you're sort of making it karaoke ready in a sense. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. It is, it is karaoke ready. I mean, there's, on disc one, there's the full songs. Right. On disc, on disc two, this is the actual tracks without the lead vocal. Disc three is the actual tracks without the lead guitar. So, I mean, what started this for me was... Uh, the facility to do it for me that it was so easy, but I think I heard Stingray, which is like the Canadian version of uh, Sirius XM. Mm -hmm. And in on comes a song that fantasy and it says accurate, you know, no, no, accurate of fantasy. And I heard it was horrible, but that wasn't the reason why I did it. The reason why I did it is so that my fans could have fun. And for me, it really wasn't difficult because, you know, I have all the tracks here. I have access to the masters. So, I bust all my uh, my vocals to one one bus, and then I vocals I bust all the guitars to one bus. Jeremy would be familiar with the recording process, and yep. then I just mute, I just mute the uh, the vocal, and then I, I bounce it, and then I mute the guitar, and I bounce it. So um, it's just it's, it's me giving back something to the fans who've been like very loyal to me, even though. You know, I've been away from the scene for 33 years. So let them have fun. Let them, you know, get a beer. Let them drink. Let them sing. Yeah. And as far as the non-lead guitar one, well, I want people to create or play, get their own sound. So if one out of a thousand people um, learn something new and I, I and develops his own style, what well, you know, mission accomplished for me. You know, so. Uh, last time we spoke, I was talking about how you've had some of the best sounding records over the years. I mean, you listen to Fantasy and the backing vocals and the guitar tones and the drums, and you listen to this record, it sounds fresh but familiar as well, especially with the songs. And like, it just sounds really good. Uh, what's the biggest difference between recording in the home studio versus having, uh, you know, big studios in New York City? Big studios in New York City. Well, first of all, they cost a lot of money. And it's a different, it's a different outlook altogether. When you have everything here, I have a bunch of rooms, which you saw, you came to my house during full yeah. COVID, by the way, in case people don't know that. So uh, <laughs> it's true. It was very full COVID, full lockdown. You guys come into the house. Yeah, but we were safe. We were good. <laughs> exactly. I had the house, uh, I had the house disinfected after that, but I mean, okay. it was cool. So having your own studio basically gives you the chance to do it yourself. Uh, I work out the songs on, um, on logic pro and I get like a really elaborate demo. So I'll send it to my drummer, Lee Levin in Miami to the guitar player in Miami. Also Dan Warner and the bass player here, uh, Sylvain, uh, budget. 
and they bring, give me back something. So what I give them, uh, they give back, but a hundred times better. So having that, I can, I can play with the sound and having different rooms. Each room has its own muse. Like if I go upstairs, I'll write something. If I go downstairs, I'll write something else. And you have the time. But what I do is I build my tracks uh, from the drums, then the bass gets done, then, you know, uh, I build that as it goes. So by the time the um, end of the record comes, the last track is done, the record's mixed. Um, right, which is a good way to work. It's the, For me, it's the only way to work, but not everybody does that, you know? Yeah. But you say you start with the drum track. I mean, so does that mean the guitar lick comes after or the melody? Like, do you always start with the drum beat or? No, I, I'm talking about like uh, the, the mix wise. No, well, mix wise, I'll, I'll get the, the uh, writing wise. I'll write the, the chords first and and the lyrics because some songs like Hey, Light and Daddy, there's no chords. It's all chromatic and, and notes. And I'll, I'll write the actual demo, I'll write the whole song, and then I'll send it to the drummer. Then I'll get back. I mean, you're ta are you talking from a perspective of mixing or are you talking from a perspective of writing? Well, when you were talking about it, I thought you were talking about like the whole process. You said you start with the drums and then I realized you were talking about the mix. No, 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 no. Because the writing happens, uh, like I said, as a whole. And yeah. then I go, I send it to the parts. But when the guys get it, it's really elaborate demo. They have to like, the, the parts are there, the, the drum parts are there, the bass parts are all there. And it's just a matter of putting it together properly. I it's use, go ahead. Oh, no, go on. I used real drums this time because I, I really like the sound of real drums. I went back to very organic. There are many, in a lot of records, I use drum machines and stuff like that. But I decided to go back with a real, real drums, real bass, real, uh, real, um, <laughs> real musicians, <laughs> real musicians, real feel. You know, I'm really like severe chops. I mean, this record, what it does is you need to be an incredible musician one to play it but it's still simple enough for somebody who's just a listener that can sing along with the songs it's got it has hooks and it's everything but it's, it's very complicated to play right yeah really is um let me ask you this uh because uh, you know me I, I i love my bon jovi we're, we're coming up to 40 years of the first album you of course had tony bon jovi mix your first album you got to meet John. You got to play on that first album. Any any memories as we as we celebrate forty years of the release? Also, can I just say, can't believe it's forty years. That's insane. <laughs> look look how old we've all gotten. <laughs> that's one good. That's one thing that uh, with uh, Eddie Gage is that it comes out April first, twenty twenty two, and the first record came out April first, nineteen eighty two, which makes it forty years to the day. Yeah, you know, so let me just—is that hard to wrap your head around that it's like it's forty years? Not at you all. Know, forty no. years of fantasy. I mean, come on. Forty years of fantasy is good. I mean, wow, that's that's something that a song lasted that long, and that the actual record were my demos. Uh, I have nothing but good memories of that, and that's like, but like I say in my liner notes, some great memories as far as making it, great records as far as touring. But then when you find out after the fact that you could, I, I literally would have control of all the, the creative parts, but uh, in my liner notes, I said the record company controls all the financial and the money where it goes. Right. And that where it applies also in Eddie Gage's story. And it's like it's a severe, you get severely screwed in the music industry. So, yeah. Um, you're talking about Bon Jovi's first album. Well, yeah, well the, the way I met him was that I was mixing my first album at the power station with Tony Bon Jovi. 
And we were mixing in Studio A, which is like the biggest studio. And we, that was on the first floor. And I'd always go outside and I see, uh, I don't know, 70, he was 17 years old and he'd be by the coffee machine. I never knew what he did. So we started got to be, you know, good friends. And then I brought him into the studio and played him uh, fantasy and he really got excited. And then again, um, although he never gets, although nobody ever gets credited for it, Tony Bon Jovi was the one who actually put that whole thing together. I mean, the people went there like you know, Roy Bitten and myself and Tim Pierce and Louis McDonald because of the fact that Tony Bon Jovi put them together. Yeah. Yeah. Was Chuck Berge there too? Uh, no, it was Frankie LaRocca. Okay. Frankie yeah. LaRocca was a drummer. Wow. So, and, so they had no, the Bon Jovi as a band didn't exist. So. No, it, they, they didn't exist until much later. And Huey McDonald, who ended up being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame deservingly, was there from day one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, he, played, he played on all the albums, all the albums, you know, from, from you yeah. know, I mean, Alex John Such didn't play on any of the albums. So. At least I don't think so, anyway. I mean, you well, was- well, Richie McD- uh, Richie McDonald, <laughs> Richie Sambora confirmed that to me in an interview. He said that the band was moving too fast, and uh, and and Alec couldn't move at the same speed. Exactly. So, and you was always laid down the bottom properly. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I've known him from day one, like I said in the runaway sessions, and also on Tim Pierce and everything. So that's what put it together. It was actually Tony Bon Jovi who who put put. All those guys got together because of him, not because that they they want they went there because uh, you know it was John Bajovi. Nobody knew who John Bajovi was. No, so, um, and Tony never gets credited, which is why on my album I credit him like a lot because he did a lot to the sound. He created, he helped me move up to another level of just getting those drums to sound. That's why Fantasy sounds so good now, forty years later. As it, because of Tony, because of Tony. Well, we mix it together. I mean, you know, I, I brought my knowledge and then he brought his experience and his knowledge and he taught me a bunch of tricks and everything. But it, we, that's why the record is credited as in the pit because we'd always argue about stuff, but we did have fun. I mean, I mean, we, we sat there and, and we just like, we were, we we're fanatics. I mean, it's like um, Studio A, I mean, uh, he's, he's like, um, I'd bring him the helicopters in fantasy. He just got, wow, the helicopters in you know, he'd take them pan and he'd pan them left and right. But he, one thing he likes that, that I like is that he mixed loud. And he had the studios in, in, in the studio way uh, on rails. And the rails could be pushed, could be brought in closer and closer. Some of the times we wore those, those big rails like headphones. I mean, it was really loud. And just like, just like incredible. We were like mad scientists. And it's like, oh, man, you know, everything was like exciting. And then we'd leave the room and they, uh, I'd ask him, I said, Tony, what are you doing? Because I'm going to go see a porn movie on Broadway. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go see it too. Let's go. So that was the way it was. So. Porn in Times Square. Come on, iconic. You can't beat that. <laughs> yeah, Times Square when it wasn't safe. I mean, yeah, back I in the to, 80s. Yeah, when I used to go to Times Square, it was just like all it was was triple X prostitutes. I mean, all a fantasy was just my observation of. Uh, of going on Broadway and Forty uh, Second Street, my first time walking down there. I mean, for a for a kid who's twenty two years old, walking down Broadway is like was pretty. Uh, it was something else. And where the where the power station was located was directly in Hell's Kitchen. And Hell's Kitchen between 
between 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue, it was like taking your life in your hands. It was really dangerous. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Not Times Square. It's like Disney. You know, so... Yeah. Listen, uh, Jeremy, I'll tell you this. When I went to interview Gene Simmons on June 9th, 1980 in New York at Ocoin Management, I was only 11 and my mom took me down and we walked down that street and there were literally little like gangs on mopeds that would go by, grab a bag, like a purse, and then yeah. drive off. Drive and off. you would just go, oh, there's one. Oh, there. And, and you just thought, oh, f- for fuck's sake, I'm next. It was. And now you walk down and it's Disney and it's an M&M store. 1980, it, it, it was like a, I don't want to say a war zone, because that's maybe too much, but it, it was not a comfortable walk. Exactly. Before Rudy Giuliani, it was a rough city. But it's funny because I was 22 years old, nothing bothered me. Oh, yeah, you want to go on 42nd and Broadway, I just walk down. and Like, you don't have a care in the world. I could have been dead by now. I mean, it's like... <laughs> it, yeah, it really was. And... and all those triple X places had these big bouncers out the door. And if you like walked on their part of the sidewalk, they would just push you and move. It, it was like, it was, <laughs> just, it was territorial. Back then. It, it was. Yeah. You don't understand that. Cause you're walking around when it's the Disney store and toys are us, but yeah, not in 1980. <laughs> As my buddy Mm-mm. Joe, I mean, he used to tell me all the time, you know, like he's like, you know, back in the eighties, you, you run CBGBs and alphabet city. Like, you know, cars were on fire every day. It was just like, it was, yeah. Like taking your life in your own hands. It was, it was the best time. It was the best time. And people now I notice in my comments and stuff like that is that people want the, just, they just go back. They're not crazy about today's music, which I find isn't really, it's all too, too, um, too formulaic. I mean, you know, it's like anybody can make music now. They take a, a program and then they get a, a loop. And then after that, I saw this software now that just writes song for you. You said, okay, I want a song A minus C. Okay, they put things together. And mm-hmm. it's just incredible now. Whereas nobody, AI machines. nobody learns how to play real instruments anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. back when I was 14, I used to have to really learn woodshed. And I practiced, you couldn't get a guitar out of my hand. You know, now it's now it's different. It's hard to get a guitar in my hand because I'm so busy doing everything else, <laughs> writing, producing. Now I'm even stuck doing my own videos. And I was wow. like, I also have a video for free in mind. I mean, Burley's Son was the other one, was the second one. And now on uh, March 9th, 29th, I'm putting out King of Deceit, and that's something else. I want to go back to something you said about Tony Bon Jovi and uh, when you guys were mixing. You said that he mixes really loud. And I remember when we were at your place, you were playing us some of the stuff and you had it playing really loud. Is that the secret to getting those records sounding so good? You listen to them really loud when you're mixing them? Is that something that Tony taught you? No, I used to mix, I used to mix really loud. Or are loud, you just deaf? No, I'm not deaf at all. I can, <laughs> you, know, you know, to put it really mildly, like I tell my, my wife, I mean, she's like, it's like loud and I can hear a fly farting. If you want to hear like a, a really good uh, terminology as to how it hears, I mean, I can hear like, okay, that's out. That's, it's got a noise, it's got a tick in it, you know, mm-hmm. because don't forget my stuff. I have to send it to Bob Ludwig, who's the master of all masters. Yeah. So you can't send anything that sounds bad because he won't do it. Is Bob still doing that. mastering or is I thought he was retired at this point. No, he's not retired. I mean, he'll do music uh, whenever, wherever. Mm-hmm. But like I said, my liner notes, that, that worked for me. And the only way I, I don't have significant hair loss is I'm really lucky. But I say it, uh, you have to measure what it is. And Bob said uh, a good level to listen to 
is between 85 and you know, between 80 and 85 dBs. And you can work eight hours a day at that point and not get hear, hear, uh, hearing loss. Right. It's funny, like listening to the different processes, because, you know, you go from really loud and then, um, you know, somebody like Nigel Green, when he was when he was mixing Hysteria with Mott Lang, like they would listen at like library volume on their NS10s. And this way they could hear every little meticulous little mix part and then they would crank it up and it would be perfect. So. That's somebody, you know, whatever style. I mean, I know all the new engineers, there's no, nobody that mixes loud. Whereas uh, I just happen to have the feel, you know, I, I want to feel the drum, the drum, the bass drum hit me in the, the chest like a cannonball. I don't, yeah. I just don't get the feel. And when I, mm. mix, when I mix it low, the, the, the balances are all still there. I find that when I mix low and then I go to loud, everything's off. But that's me. You know, but don't forget when I send it to Bob, he's like the expert. And Bob goes, Your mixes are perfect. He goes, Some of these are some of the hottest mixes I've ever gone. I've ever right. got. We have a recipe with Bob is take my mixes, make them louder, punchier, and that's it. Let me just uh, ask you this before we uh, before we wrap up. It's been 30 some years so you know this is the comeback are you excited to get back out there and get on stage and do a full tour and and does this mean that maybe in two years from now we get a new album are you back on the on the train or is this sort of this uh moment in time or is this just another blip in the map uh no this time i'm not going away i'm gonna go on tour i already have an amazing band and if you watch the fear of mind video that's the band so it's like uh like we move, we get there, we got chops, we got everything. Uh, when, when I hire bands, I hire rock stars. I don't hire just backup musicians that just sit there. I, I was looking for a particular look. Stand there and look pretty. What? I said they stand there and look pretty. Man, not on his, not in his band. Some guys don't even uh, stand there and look pretty. Some of them are pretty ugly, but I mean, my band. <laughs> when, when, if you listen to Fear of Mind or you watch the Fear of Mind video, that's my band. You know, I said, all got guys like Jack Frost on guitar, who's got, you know, a ton of raw experience. Various successes play with everybody. I've got Angie Kershaw from Montreal, who you probably know. Yep. And I call Charlie Calvin keyboards. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going away this time. As far as, uh, as far as doing another record, like I said, that'll come. But I, st I still got, I mean, just in stuff that I haven't released yet. I mean, it's like I'm releasing... Um, the 10 song EP of Eddie Cage. I'm releasing uh, no, uh, Reloader on uh, April 19th. And after that, I'll probably release the album, uh, which is the 25 song rock opera completely. And then I'll release Nova's Dream, a, re a reissue of Nova's Dream, which I got the master of, which is an instrumental album. So that will be four this year. Wow. And then I'll put it in a box set and with all new concepts also. Wow, this is great. It's yeah. great. Hey, it's going to be the year of Aldo Nova, man. I'm telling you. Are you going to be hitting the road and doing some shows? Well, yeah. Yeah, but probably only in 2023 because yeah. uh, I'm doing everything methodically. I'm doing everything right this time. I'm not just coming out there and with no plan. I've been planning this for years, working out. And it's like uh, getting in shape so that, you know, when I came out, people wouldn't go, oh, my God, he's like overweight. He's this, he's bald. Um, so I didn't want to go and approach uh, a booker now because a booking agency uh, if I went to them now they'd go oh well you know classic rock 40 years one hit wonder whatever and I don't blame them because so far that's it 
So I have to prove otherwise, which is right. why Eddie Gage is the other thing. And once the Eddie Gage thing establishes me and establishes the fact that I'm back and people like it, then I'll go to a good booking agency or one will approach me. But now everything is, all the shows are, are booked one year in advance. So, uh, I mean, if I get a booking agency app in 2022, then I'll start doing the shows in 2023. Well, I'll tell you what, double bill right there. Aldenova, Bon Jovi, 40 years later. I think that'd be pretty damn good. <laughs> that would be. I smell well, money. I do too. That'd be a great opening act. There's your stadium tour next year. Aldenova, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Triple Bill. Stadiums <laughs> around the around the U.S. We're done. Yes, I'm in. Cool. Yeah, I'm in. Yep. And we'll even have Alec uh, John Such come out and, I don't know, carry some there and look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, it's not nice to make fun of people. It's not nice to make fun of people. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I uh, know, we don't I make know. fun. We make we make fun with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have, but, you heard, uh, have you heard anything from Richard Sambor? I mean, I thought he was making an album with Bob Rock, and I haven't. Uh... He's, he's making uh, that album with Bob Rock. It is apparently completed. I'm hearing, I don't know how truthfully, but I'm hearing it might come out by the end of 2022. You know, let's hope. Yeah. There, there are there are some clips uh, of some of the tracks on on YouTube. Thirty seconds here, a minute there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's that Norm's guitar guy or some of that who's who's been putting out these clips. Like so that, let's yeah. hope. Let's oh, hope. Yeah. And we've heard the, we've heard from a couple of people. So I hope so too, because you know, no matter what anybody says, I mean, he was the the soul of Bon Jovi. I mean, he he just really played with Phil. He sang with Phil. I don't know. I mean, I miss seeing uh, Richie around. Plus, he's hysterical as hell. So I mean, yeah, but you've you've actually worked with Phil X as well, haven't you? He he was in your band. Yeah, Phil X was in my band during the whole Blood on the Bricks tour. Right. So uh, yeah, that's. So you've worked with both. Yeah, I mean, but Phil, I mean, his first time he met Bon Jovi, and you could see that on on YouTube is uh, when uh, he John came on stage uh, at the KLOL in Houston in 1991 for a charity show and he did blaze of glory and phil was in the band so i don't know if he actually remembered him or not but that's the first time they met so yeah well, I, I, that's good i'll say two things first of all uh, richie sambora's uh, lowdown of the aftermath album is is brilliant if you haven't checked that out you should and second of all i would like to see richie back but i don't want to see phil leave i would like to see sort of like an iron maiden thing where they just keep everybody because I think Phil and Richie together would just be magical. I just, I really do. I mean, Phil, his backing vocals, his, the way he 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 hits a guitar is perfect. But Richie, I mean, Richie's Richie. You, you, <laughs> you know, yeah, still letting Richie do his stuff, you know, stuff. So. Yeah, and, and listen, it's funny. It, it, it's funny this interview because we know each other. It's like we're not talking to each other like a, an interviewer and an interviewee. I mean. Right. You guys came to the house. You heard, you heard that he gave even before everybody else. I mean, yeah, sounds great. Relaxed. So I know he says, great. We're, we're here interviewing Alden Over. We're talking about Richie Sambors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, suddenly. No, suddenly. I didn't want to veer oh, off, but I, I turned I, into I, a love I, fest, though. That's the, that's the cool I, thing about it. It's not just, yeah, uh, tell it, me, it, do you like... It makes for discussion. It doesn't make for like, oh, I'm sitting here and I'm answering questions. The, the We're sitting here with Aldo Nova. Tell me, do you prefer ketchup chips or salt and vinegar? <laughs> that's the beat. Uh, that's the beat kind of question. Yeah. No, salt but, salt but salt I love... <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> there you go. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat that. I, I just, I like what Iron Maiden did. They didn't throw anybody out. They just brought everybody back and it's just made for the spectacular 
live show, and I think it would work for Bon Jovi. I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just. Well, saying. It works for me. I mean, you know, it's like I'm. When you look at me, you're coming to me live. I'm, I'm like the only band that has all the original members. Me <laughs> and me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's it. You know, it's like that's the greatest quote out, ever. You go see Aldenova. You know, you're gonna see Aldenova. That's it. It doesn't matter if you change the guitar player. I mean, it's like I'm the I'm the original guy. I'm the best. Yeah. <laughs> Here, uh, last question from me. Uh, you're gonna do the Eddie Gage stuff, but are you gonna go do the sort of Aldenova classic plays the hits kind of tour? You know, the 15 songs where you get fantasy and blood and. Or are you just going to go out and do Eddie Gage for a while? Well, Reloaded is what it is. I mean, that, that's okay. what uh, Reloaded is. It's a, a sort of a turbocharge, all my hits. It's Blood, uh, Monkey on Your Back. It's Blood on the Bricks, Monkey on Your Back, Under the mm -hmm. Gun, Fooling Yourself. You know, all these great songs, but with new arrangements. And they really smoke. And that started during the COVID because I started doing uh, – I started doing uh, – um, paradise as a COVID thing, just like that. And then people started noticing and first comments realistically were like, Oh my God, he's still alive. Oh, this guy's still alive. So after that, we did another one, got more popular. We did another one. And then after that, I did, when I did the fantasy one, that's, you know, almost got 400,000 views for a COVID. It's not bad. So I reloaded is basically all the COVID tracks remixed and put up and uh, everybody that hears it, you know, thinks it's great. Yeah. Well, look, Aldo Nova, uh, it's all coming out uh, April 1st, The Life and Times of Ada Gage. You can pre-order it now. You can check out the new music videos, which are great as well online, the live performances. Uh, you shot that at the Olympia, the uh, the live video? I shot it at the Olympia, yeah. It was yeah. like shot at the Olympia, and that, that was a whole other ordeal. That was like an eight-month uh, thing. So I ended up even having to edit my own videos because it was just like – it was – the video was just the, the place to get everybody in line to find a place to do it so that everything would match um, and everything was coordinated. So we finally got the hall, even though it, they had just opened up after COVID and there were no places. I wanted to shoot it at the Metropolis. And then that, was, that wasn't open anymore, wasn't available. Then after that, then I had to get the guys in and it was COVID at the higher up uh, uh, immigration attorney. And I had no when I when I got Jack and Dario in the band, I had never met them. We only did a couple of zooms and everything. So I'm waiting for them to cross the border. I had never met them, and I had no backup plan. It's not as if I have a bass player in the wings and a guitar player in the wings. That's it. And you, know, well, you could have hired me and Mitch to mime. We could have done it. <laughs> yeah, but it worked out really great. So at the end yeah. of the of the shoot, we're like floating on air. I'm floating on air. This is great. Everything is finally done. And then I get to the first edit from 61 Days Later. I get the first edit from the director, and it's horrifyingly bad. Um, so I asked for the the, uh, the hard drive back. And then when we look on, we did 11 takes for your mind. When I looked at the hard drive, there was nothing. There was only like 13 pieces of film, uh, two takes, takes of me that were acceptable, three takes of the bass player, three takes of the guitar player, some of the drummer, the whole, the, the whole lighting show from far away. And I had to put a foot together through your mind, you know, and even though I'm very wow. familiar with editing, it was like a nightmare. I mean, you know, so. Yeah. 
Well, look, uh, The Life and Times of Eddie Gage coming out on April 1st. Also, Aldo Nova 2.0 Reloaded available on April 19th. You could go and pre-order all of it now. Um, yep. You got the website. You got the social media. Everybody can find you if they want to go and find you. Uh, you're all up there. You do great on Facebook, too, which uh, I love following you on the Facebook and all that. Yeah. Um, the, thing, the thing about Facebook is that, you know, it's really me writing everything. It's like, yeah. it's not, I don't have a machine or a, uh, a firm writing all my, my posts, so. Yeah, it's all de novo. What you see is what you get. I mean, what more do you want? You know, it's a direct I connection. It. I love it. All right. And the YouTube. Don't forget his YouTube. His YouTube's got great content. All yep. kinds of in the studio home versions, and I love it. Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, Aldo, it's so great to see you again. We'll have to uh, come by the come by the place for a tea again sometime. Okay, great. Tea and crumpets. <laughs> Thank you. Sir. All right. Yeah. See you later. Bye, Merci bien. Cheers. Bye. Now, back to the Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. We are speaking with Atomic Tommy M, a guitarist and uh, also known as uh, Tommy McClendon, as we say here in Montreal. Bonjour, Tommy. Comment allez-vous? How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing up there in Canada? Good, good. So, before we start talking about UFO and Soul Motor with Brian Wheat and all that wonderful stuff... What are you currently up to? I mean, can can fans be expecting anything? Are we? Is there something that we can check out new from you soon? Well, let's see. Um, I actually have working on a project mm -hmm. of my own. It's actually called Thunderwing, Atomic Tommy's Thunderwing, which was a, the name of the band is actually a band name that I had a long time ago with my brother. And we uh, kind of had different uh, incarnations of that band with different um, number of people and, and so forth. For the longest time, it was a trio. And then and after that, it was a four-piece band. But I've been kind of like just resurrecting that. And, and a couple of years ago, I actually released two songs that I had rewritten that I wrote back in 1978 and 1979. So basically, I'm keeping that project alive and just kind of rehashing some of the old songs and rewriting them and adding new ones. So that's in this process. So just kind of amassing as many songs as I can with that. And is that an album that you're trying to put together and have out like this year? Or is it something that eh, we'll see maybe two years from now, three years? Like, yeah, a couple of years because an album's worth, you know. So instead, I actually just release uh, individual songs like singles or whatever you want to call it. Just songs. And and are you releasing them under that uh, under that band name? Are you releasing them under Atomic Tommy, or are you are you using your name? What are you releasing them under? It's Atomic Tommy's Thunderwing. Okay, as perfect. a tribute to um, the band name uh, with uh, that originated with me and my brother back in uh, nineteen uh, whatever year it was <laughs> yeah, seventy two. Yeah, long time ago. All right. Yeah, me... when we were just like you know, just uh, I was still a teenager. And then we actually, when we uh, had our band, our trio band, and we actually moved to uh, the Northwest and we played around there for a long, uh, a few years. Let me quickly ask you about uh, your work with UFO. Um, what was that like coming into the band? Because obviously... You come in after Schenker, after Chapman, you, you know, there's the, the Phil sort of res resurrects the band. What was those moments like? Was there a lot of pressure? Was there a lot of like, hey, you got to sound like Michael or hey, how was that whole situation approached for you? Uh, just say, uh, let me fix uh, something went wrong here. Yeah, I can't see you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where the heck did the. 
I, okay. Should be a little button that says camera. Is that it? There we go. You're yeah, back. I, I have this big white text thing in the middle of the picture it says this meeting is being recorded by the law by the host of the persist participant. Oh, there should be a little button that's that, that you can click on that where you say got it. You should say got it and you just click on it. Yeah, there's nothing there. Oh, well, listen, I'm not that pretty to look at anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. So what was the question about? Yeah, so let me, Michael Schenker, et cetera. Yeah, so let me uh, let me just restate the question. So, to, for editing purposes here, okay. Um, you, of course, are are known to me at least for being on the um, misdemeanor UFO album, and and of course you're coming in after Michael Schenker, after uh, Paul Chapman. What was that like for you? Did, did Phil sort of say, "Hey, I need you to play like these guys"? Did he sort of let you establish your own sound? Um, what was that like? Yeah, there, there was never any kind of approach of that type of like trying to uh, fill someone else's shoes or their st musical style. Um, I think at the time, Phil wanted to, Phil Mogg wanted to really start a new project with a new band. And so I think he chose me because I was a, a songwriter as well as, you know, a guitarist. Um, so basically, he was looking for someone to write the songs with and uh, create a sound that he was that he had heard in his head or something, just something different. I think he just wanted to do something different. So um, there was never any uh, thought about, you know, um, trying to make a sound like Paul or Michael as a guitarist. Uh, it was just a, a process of just let's see what we can do kind of thing. Was was Misdemeanor meant to be a Phil Mogg solo record? And then the record company said, hey, no, we, we got to put the brand... Because, you know, Black Sabbath and Tony Iommi with Seven Star, the record company sort of said, hey, you got to use the brand name. Was that what's, what was going on here? No, it was... To my knowledge, it was never a solo album. It okay. was just a new band. Okay. Yeah. And so, what happened was, because we were started pitching the band to the record labels for a record contract that's when the uh the label wars kind of started so it was like well if we go out and tour before we get the record deal then we can prove to the labels that we're a good band etc and so i think it came to the fact that well we were going to um have a different band name but maybe it made more logical sense to keep for phil to keep the name ufo See, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which which makes sense. Now, yeah. Um this must this is going to sound strange for UFO fans, but Misdemeanor is one of my favorite UFO albums. I absolutely love it. I think Night Run this time it's just a great pop record. And I know that UFO fans don't want pop records. They want whatever, you know, classic rock record. Um Talk to me a little bit about the sound and some of the hate that it's gotten because you, overall, it's a fun record. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for digging the record. Um, I think when we made the the album, we we kind of got the band members together. Yeah. Um, we weren't exactly sure, you know, right right away what we uh, wanted to do with the sound. We kind of developed it as we went. And I know it's um, 
because I, I myself was a big UFO fan. I always right. have been, um, especially Michael Schenker. And um, I think when, as we wrote the songs, we just wanted to just uh, create, be creative with the music. So we didn't try to see any boundaries. We didn't try to make it pop for a pop reason. Right. You know, we kept it whatever we uh, felt like we wanted to do. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the production in that, because there is a lot of sort of electronic drums. There's all kinds of, you right. know, 80s sounding elements. Who came up with Was that Nick Tauber who said, hey, let's let's try this? Was it Phil? Was it you? Um, because, it listen, it does sound dated now. You you listen to it and you go, yeah, that's that's the 80s. But yeah, right. I'm a child of the 80s, so, so I love right. it. Um, <laughs> right, talk to me about those production. Sound, and, yeah, yeah the, the, the gated drum. Yeah. Um, the way some of the uh, background vocals kind of come in and oh, out. Oh, they're layered and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and the keyboards, it's, it, listen, it, it's, it's 1985. It's, it's a, it's absolutely a 1985 record. You can hear it, <laughs> but I love that stuff. I mean, you know, give, give me Phil Collins, give me, uh, give me Huey Lewis, give me Brian Adams. I, I'm, I'm in. So uh, talk to me about, about the, those elements, though, because it really was reinventing the band's sound. It wasn't like dirty rock and roll. It was slick radio music. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's a combination of both things, because we always knew that live, as the, um, the core of the songs, was always going to be straightforward mm-hmm. and, and, and rock. Um, but it, it came off a, a little slicker on the, on the record, um, not as powerful as we wanted, and we all felt that way. We we really? we knew there was a difference. Yeah. Did so? Do you hate the record then? Are you disappointed with it? Do you think eh, maybe it should have been done differently? Yeah, I'm slightly disappointed. I I wish it could be remixed because because I think that would make a big difference. You know, stripping away the the effects off the drums, especially the overuse of uh, like say reverbs. Right on instruments, um, balancing the guitars a little bit hotter into the mix. Really? Um, yeah, I think I think it could it could uh, benefit from that. Well, let me ask you then, uh, Nick Tauber, who who produced it, obviously didn't mix it, but produced it, worked with Marillion, Thin Lizzy, and some of these other bands. Do do you think he just didn't do a, a good job? Did he did he not did he not give you the record you wanted? No, I, I don't want to blame Nick on on right. that. Okay. Yeah, uh, I I think it was a combination of trying to make a record that had a lot of appeal to a, like a, a a wider audience, you could say, mm-hmm. because of the mu- musical tastes on on radio and things like that. We're kind of changing. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh, I will. I will. I will defend the song "Night Run" till the, till my death. Uh, in terms <laughs> of your guitar playing, what was some of the rigs and what was some of the, the 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 gear that you used on this one? What What did I use? Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, my basic setup was really just um, hundred watt Marshall, one or right. two, depending on if it was like live or recorded. And um, my SG, my modified SG, my modified Strat, and really just, uh, let's see, what did I use? A, a, a Roland uh, delay unit for the wet sounds and, um, and just a tube screamer for the, this, uh, for the solos. That was it. 
It's very straightforward. And and this is where we need my co-host Jeremy because he knows all this gear talk. I I'm very sort of uh, trepidatious on the whole thing. Uh, after that, you get into "Ain't Misbehaving," uh, sort of an EP, for the lack of a better word. Uh, talk to me quickly about that one because uh, recently, or in the last few years, the band has remastered everything, uh, and and they've re-released everything. But they 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 left "Ain't Misbehaving" off of that re-release schedule, and it, it's never been remastered, at least not to my knowledge. Right. Um, talk to me about that one. Was that just sort of going to be a continuation of a "Misdemeanor," or was that supposed to be a whole new project. Well, I, I, when we came off the U.S. tour in 80, 86, 85, um, we started writing more material. But this time, we didn't have a keyboard player in the band. So there was more focus on just getting the guitars, more just writing off the guitars. Uh, Paul Gray uh, had a couple of um, keyboard songs that he wrote on keyboard, and we included those. And we just started just writing to keep the continuity going. And I think we just needed to uh, present more uh, material to the record label, right, to Chrysalis, to keep it pushing along. And then they basically turned it down. So we were just basically doing more uh, demoing. You know, we recorded the songs in uh, Birmingham. Um, you were introduced to the band, if I'm not mistaken, through Mike Varney. Yeah. And but of course, to, yeah. to Phil Mock. So, introduced to Phil Mong, yeah. By, by Mike? Yeah. So, remember, there was no band at this point. Correct. In 1984. Right. It was just Phil. Okay, so, oh, right, 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 right. I see what you mean. Okay. Um, just talk to me a little bit about my, Mike Varney, because he has given the world, or not given the world, he's, he's introduced, <laughs> you know, Jason Becker and Joe Satriani. I mean, he, he really understands what a guitarist is, and he, he, if he picks you, that means you're good. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Uh, talk to me about the relationship between you and Mike Varney and, and what that means that he said to, to Phil, you need this guy. I don't know. I, 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 after I uh, was in Guitar Player Magazine in the Spotlight column, in, mm -hmm. in Mike's Spotlight column, I think um, one time he, he just gave me a call and said, hey, I think I have someone that you might fit with. So I went and auditioned for Phil, and I basically gave Phil uh, the rest, uh, rest of my demo songs that I was writing and playing on. And, and basically I just took it from there in an audition for Phil. Well, what's an audition for Phil like? Because as you know, Phil doesn't do interviews. You never get to talk to him. <laughs> you, you never get to hear his story, which is which is frustrating. Uh, as a rock reporter, it's frustrating. Yeah. What was that like? Do you, do you come in and have to play Dr. Doctor and then he says, hey, I like you. Okay, let's go. Or is it a little more complicated? Or is it just, oh, you look like a good guy. All right, come on in. You know what? What happened was um, there was a, a few of, a, of us guitarists that got together for that day, right. and we uh, each learned uh, all learned like me about four or five UFO tunes, and we went to a, a warehouse re um, rehearsal place and just played for Phil. And there was a drummer and a bass player, and just played and played the songs, and. Uh, so an and open casting call, basically, an, o an open audition, basically. Yeah. Wow. Do, do you remember anybody else that, that was standing in line with you? I mean, was, was Joe Satriani behind you going, all right, it's my turn? 
No. <laughs> no. No, there was one fella named, named Greg. I forget his last name. Really a great guy. He actually had moved to Los Angeles and uh, started doing solo work. Uh, sorry, um, not solo work. Studio work. Studio work. But um, I don't know Greg's last name, but he was a great guy, and he had a completely different style for me. So it was really kind of cool that I thought, hey, maybe uh, Phil could have two guitarists, like a, make like a like a Thin Lizzy kind of approach, you know? Right, right, right. But um, eventually, he just wanted a single guitarist. So how much uh, how much time after the audition do you know when you get the gig? I mean, does does Phil call you and say you're in, or does he? You start playing and go, oh, all right, that is the sound. Close the auditions. He's my guy. Well, after the initial audition, I um, I went to L.A. and stayed with Phil for a week. Okay. And basically, I thought we'd be writing some uh, more songs together, or starting writing songs together. Right. But then, no, we just kind of hung out for a week. <laughs> so, and then, then Phil went back to England to uh, sort out details with management, etc., so the point was for me to move there so we could keep the, uh, get the project going. Right. So we didn't really call it UFO. We didn't call it anything in particular. It was just going to be this new band. See? Wow. And when you uh, end up touring and you're going out there and you're playing uh, Rock Bottom and Dr. Doctor and Lights Out, talk to me about that because you were a fan, as you said. Yeah. Do you do you say to, to Phil or does Phil say to you, listen, this is what Shanker did, go learn it note for note, or do you say or does he say, have at it, tomify them? It it was it was like, yeah, it's like free reign, kinda do what you like. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of confidence in me, which I really, really, really appreciated, you know. It was meant a lot to a lot to me. But but personally when I would be playing, I always would think about michael i would think about paul and i didn't know mick bolton and so i didn't really didn't know what to think there right but uh <laughs> but you know um it was important to me to play the classic tunes the best way i could play them that i could at the time you know what i mean Right. Was there was there a fear or a trepidation? Because you know, fans, as soon as you step on that stage, are gonna are gonna start comparing you. You know it. Right. It happens to everyone in the, my types of situations. Any replacement is going to be. Oh, you're not the you're not the old guy. You're not you're not the you're not the guy we love. Was that right. difficult? Did you or did you just sort of push that out of your mind and say, "Listen, you're coming to a UFO show. You're going to hear the UFO songs, and that's the best I can do." I think it, at the same time as that, what you just said, um, it's like when we're on stage, we got each other's backs. Right. So no matter what, we're going to push forward. And emotionally and musically, we're just going to do it. And if it works and people love it, then we know we succeeded. And I think a lot of times with the live concerts, I think basically we did win them over. And and I take that as as a team effort. Yeah, so do I. Uh, you listen. You you've won me over with misdemeanor. Um, after UFO, you you, you sort of uh, I don't want to say fall, fell out of the scene, but you you weren't very productive in terms of getting into new bands and making new albums. And then eventually, you get to Brian Wheat of uh, Tesla, who has a new band called Soul Motor. When Tesla was on a 
hiatus for the lack of a better word. Um, talk to me about hooking up with Brian Weed and 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 Soul Mortar because the record that was put out is is fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, what was I doing then? I was basically looking for auditions again to to play with different uh, players. Before before I moved back to the states, I actually was working with Clyde Burr for a short while. We were writing songs together in his basement, and uh, we were trying to form a band. So we we were looking for a guitarist, um, sorry, a bassist, a bassist, and a vocalist uh, to round out the band because we did have kind of like a working production deal that we had kind of going. Right. So. We tried to form a band, but that didn't just work work out very well. So I eventually came back to the States. And uh, from there, again, I kept writing my own material and um, thinking, okay, I'll just work solo again, just keep working on stuff. And um, what happened next was, I think it was Brian. Well, I had other bands, of course. There was like local bands, bands in the Bay Area, um, one called Soul Dog. We had some recording with Eric Valentine. Um, and then we, uh, that, that group broke up. Right. So basically I, I was hanging out one day and Brian, Brian gave me a call because I'd known Brian for a long time. So Brian gave me a call and said, hey, well, Frank, um, Frank Hannon just quit Soul Motor because he was working with that group as well. Right. But he quit to do uh, Moondog Maine. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll step in and see, you know, how this works out. So I went up and, and we started writing songs right away. And uh, that's how that came about. So, so let me ask you this then. After being in UFO and, you, and you've done those tours and you work with Phil, did the phone not ring? Did, did you not get bands calling you and saying, hey, we heard you're available. Come and join us. What happened where you, you just... You didn't really do anything afterwards. Yeah, there, there's a, there was a couple calls. I just didn't feel they were right at the time. Oh, so who was yeah, calling? Was it like was, Flock of Seagulls calling? Like no, no. One was Saxon, actually. And um, then I did audition for Dave Lee Roth. And yeah, I went to his his house. So well, yeah, right, back, back up the truck. Yeah, you auditioned for David like, Lee Roth. What's that? I, I said, back up the truck here. You, you auditioned for David Lee Roth. So, are, are we talking yeah. the eat him and no? Can't be eat him and smile because it was yeah. It was after uh, Steve Vai had left. Uh, what came after that? Uh, uh, the one where he's hanging on the. <laughs> oh, <it's laughs> uh, pa- pa- uh, you must. You, you're just not living in pair. Think... Just like pair, whatever. But so, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm pulling like, a blank I think on it. Was it was the fourth, the third or fourth record, but. But all the all the songs had already been written. Okay. At the, yeah. And and what was that like? I I mean, working with Phil is one thing, but what's it what's it like auditioning for David Lee Roth? Is he there checking you out, seeing what you're doing, or does he just send down like a team of people? Go all right, go find me a guitarist, and I'll uh, let me know when you're done. H- how does that work? <laughs> no, he was there. He definitely he was definitely there. And yeah, so we and, all played in the in the basement. Me and Greg Bizonet and oh wow, because he has a studio down there. Oh wow, and and of course uh, they they didn't uh, they they didn't pick you. But so what happened at that uh, at that audition? Where 
what songs were you playing? Were you rehearsing Van Halen stuff? Were you re- rehearsing just uh, Eat 'Em and Smile stuff? Or what were you? Uh, yeah, a combination, a couple of Van Halen tunes and a couple of David Lee Roth tunes. Talk to me about the 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 intricacies of trying to imitate Eddie Van Halen because that's. I mean, poor you. <laughs> First, you have to imitate <laughs> Michael Shanker, and then not imitate, but you got it. You got to follow the footsteps of Michael Shanker, and then you got to follow in the footsteps of Eddie Van Halen. I mean, my lord, could, know, could they make it any guitars, more difficult? <laughs> yeah, two of the guitars that I absolutely adored, and and yeah, it was difficult. But at the same time, it just makes you. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you playing. It keeps you really thinking about what you're doing as a musician and a guitarist. And so like, yeah, I can cover this. I can, I can handle that, you know, God, but uh, the main thing always is, is, is a guitar player is like, well, you got to have the feel, you got to put the feel into that, no matter what, no matter what the style is, what is, you know, if it's someone else's chops or whatever, it's all about the feel. Uh, since you've had a chance to play the songs of both those, those gentlemen, uh, talk to me a little bit about it in terms of when you've had to study and play a Michael Schenker riff. And so, is it easy? Is it difficult? Talk to me about because he he really is unique. His his fingers are unique. His sound is unique. Yeah, it is uh, difficult. It's a challenge, like trying to play like anyone's other style, whether it's Michael or Eddie or let's say Al Diamiolo or John McLaughlin, or, or even like you take like old chops from the forties and like Django Reinhardt and folks like that. Everything's a challenge, but it, that's what makes the musician and the guitarist um, just push forward and like, try to like cop that, um, the vibe the and everything. Vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, everybody uh, who 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 understands rock will will say to you that Eddie Van Halen's a genius. So as you're learning those songs and you're learning those parts, do do you feel that sense of genius and go, man, that's good? Who, who, how do you think of that? Oh yeah, but when you figure it out, even you know, going back a, a decade or two where we didn't have youtube to figure out sound songs out and someone else didn't always do it for you it didn't it did make you work harder at it and use your ears uh constantly you know and then i think it all goes back to when i I was a teenager or even like 13 14 years old growing up i always made a point when i went to see a, a band play that i had to get up close to the stage so i can watch the musicians play that was really important to me and I would do that often, like I go to the, the Fillmore or Winterland or even just local shows and, and just like stare at the guys like, well, how are they doing that song? How is, how is Peter Frampton playing this part? You know, um, just as you grow with that, it just becomes part of how you hear the music. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So um, but just before we wrap up, where where can we hear you next? I mean, we talked at the beginning that you've got these songs and a project coming out, but... Is there anything else uh, other than the project? Are, are you going to be on a, I don't know, a, a, a TV commercial or in a movie or a soundtrack? Or <laughs> where, where can we hear you next? Or are we just waiting for this collection of songs? Yeah, waiting for the collection. Okay. I'll play live here and there, different projects. Okay. Um, maybe the, the, the newer Soul Motor stuff will be eventually be finished this year. I can't promise that. 
Um, oh, you still working with Brian? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I thought Brian was was all all full, full steam ahead. Tesla's okay. Quickly then. Uh, yeah. When he has the, the the side project time, he works on it. He mixes huh. it. We actually rewrote and re-recorded uh, quite a few of the uh, songs from the first and second albums. Really? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. And and so by re-recording them and all that, I'm assuming you're updating the sound, you're updating the arrangements, you're you're just making it 2022. Um. Yeah, I don't know about 2022, but I would say 2023. Okay. Um, I just, I just, <laughs> I think maybe just pushing it forward to keep the songs alive and available and just bring them, if it's up to date in that respect, yeah. Um, but some of them still have the same song arrangements. Okay. They just sound a little bit fuller and bigger. So if that's what you mean by 2022, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what, yeah. So, okay, so production wise. Okay, so good. Yeah. That, that's great. And, um, I will I will leave you on this. I'll, I'll just quickly go back to it to misdemeanor, and uh, I personally don't understand the hate that it gets from fans. I love it, and I've told you that about eight times now. Um, ultimately, <laughs> w- what's your last word on it in terms of feeling and and you know you, I'm looking at it. I mean, Heaven's Gate, Reckless, this time, you know, oh, it's great. It's in my phone at all times. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I think it, we wrote those songs together as a band. Right. And that's the most important thing to me. When you hear the, the vocal, that's Phil. The lyrics, that's Phil. There's no mistaking in that. This is where he was at at the time in, in 84, 85, 86, doing that. And he, and he put his heart and soul into it, and we all did. And um, it should be part of the catalog, regardless of what anyone thinks. It should I always agree. be there. Tonally speaking, if someone says, oh, that's that's not the right sound, etc. Okay, it's maybe it's not, but it was a, a, a stepping stone to keep the band alive. Right. Well, and, and, and you see, that's what bothers me. People don't say it's the same sound because then you get another band that does the same sound every album and the same critic will come out and say, oh man, they never grow. They always do the same thing. And it's like, well, they do something different, you crucify them. They do the same thing, you crucify them. So <laughs> what are they supposed to do? I mean, come on. And yeah, there's, well, we're all fans. I mean, right. we, we're, we, we all may be guilty of doing that to our favorite groups as well, right? Uh-oh, what what like, group have you done like, that to? Who, who have you complained <laughs> about? What's your favorite group that you've, that you've crucified? Um, personally, I, I can't think of anything right now. And I honestly, I can't think of anything right now, yeah. but I have friends, you know, I have friends in the, in the, uh, the Van Halen camps, right? Two right. different Van Halen camps. And it's just like, what the, does it matter? It's like Eddie. It's always Ed. It's always Ed. That's, Eddie Alex. yeah, that's yeah. what is it's important to me. Yeah. And I'll tell you that <laughs> for me, I like that, that fans, uh, or not fans, that bands do something different. There are other albums that get a lot of hate which is uh, Scorpion's Eye to Eye and uh, Def Leppard Slang. And I'm just like, you know what? They they needed to do something different. They had to break out of the mold because in 96 and in 99, they could not have made the same album. And, and, and so, you know, 15 years into, into UFO, they couldn't repeat 
what they had done before. It just wouldn't have made sense to do Rock Bottom Part 2. It, it just wouldn't have. So, Yeah, because yeah, then if, if it was Rock Bottom Part 2, it would only be compared to Rock Bottom Part 1. Right. Right? And, so and, there was no point to that. I, I so agree. And, and essentially, there's no point in me just sitting there and playing, trying to play like Michael, for example. Because then it's just comparisons to Michael. It's best that guitarists, each guitarist, stands on their own two feet in their own styles. Now, I I find myself quite versatile as a musician because mm -hmm. I play keyboards, guitars, violins. Um, yeah. I do all that stuff. So um, I have a certain approach to music that I that I always bring to what I play. So to me, the bottom line is to keep it very musical. Yeah, you know, that's, way, that's I'm, I'm just uh, I, I just noticed that you actually wrote Night Run. That's fantastic. I love that song. It's a great thing. Um, and let me end on this. The uh, obviously the band moved on and reformed and, and eventually brought Michael back. Was your departure just hey, listen, this has run its course and we we need to, to seek greener pastures? Or was it fired? Was there like a, you know, was it acrimonious? Or was it like, hey, listen, I just, you know, did Phil just say, listen, I got to move on. I'm, I'm sorry. Do you still talk to Phil? Was it was it an okay relationship at the way it ended? Yeah, he lived in Birmingham. He had a house there. So I'd go visit him and stuff. Even when I started working with, with Clyde Burr, I'd go visit Phil. Um Phil started working with uh, his uh, nephew, Nigel, you know, with the, the choir boys mm -hmm. and uh, stuff like that. So, we, yeah, we, we see each other. Okay, so, so you're, you're still friendly with Phil? Oh, yeah. One of the greatest vocalists ever. And someday somebody's going to have to convince him to do another interview. <laughs> <laughs> did, did he ever mention why he doesn't do interviews? Did he just say, meh, F it, I don't do this nonsense? Did he ever say no? It? No, not to me. No. <laughs> I've always been curious as to why why he won't uh, he won't speak. But hey, listen, he gave us what fifty years of great music, so I ain't complaining. Yeah. And, anyway, as we as we say in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Uh, absolute pleasure. It was fun to to talk to you and and talk to somebody who was on those two albums because I'll say it for the tenth time, I love them. Love those. Thanks. Albums. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you. A absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. An all-new episode of the Mitch Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews. Bonus content. And episodes on demand now. Visit YouTube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch Lafon and at Jeremy White MTL.